Welcome to Keep the Faith Ministry. Keep the Faith brings you timely messages with in-depth spiritual analysis of current events in light of Bible prophecy so you can prepare for the coming of Jesus. Listen to what the news won't tell you. Here is another important message for our times. This is Pastor Hal Mayer. Dear friends, as we near the end of time, we are going to need an experience like Joseph. The way God's people are going to be treated will have many of the same elements of injustice. Yet we must maintain our faith that God is working out His larger plan, that He is using us to bring about our ultimate destiny. We have to learn how to trust Him now in all things, and let him prepare us for the time of trouble. Whatever pit or prison God allows you to experience, it is his way of making you the man or woman that he can really use. Remember that Satan can do nothing except that God allows it. And if God allows him to do something to us, it is for our good and the good of his cause. To get upset, angry, bitter, or revengeful— is only going to delay or even derail God's great and wonderful purpose for us. Before we begin our study, let us pray. Our Father in heaven, thank you for the story of Joseph. It has great lessons to help us navigate the difficulties of life. Help us to understand them and learn them ourselves. Thank you for Jesus, of which Joseph is a type. Thank you for his sacrifice on the cross for our sins. May it change our lives, we pray, in Jesus' name. Amen. You may remember that God allowed Joseph to be put in prison, another pit, so to speak, to prepare him to become prime minister of Egypt. Isn't that strange? The world doesn't think that way. Going to prison usually means the end of one's career or one's reputation, not the beginning. If someone is judged guilty of a crime and is sent to prison, people don't usually think of promoting them to a higher position when they are released. Yet this is what happened to Joseph. Prison was God's way of positioning him to do what God intended all along. Do you think God works that way sometimes in our life? He does mine. I can see it, especially when I look back over my life. I can see that God has been preparing me, often through trials and difficulties, restrictions and limitations, hardships and injustice. Every time Joseph was crucified, God raised him up to something better. Whenever there's a crucifixion, my friends, there is always a resurrection, if we're faithful. It is the very injustice that justifies God in raising you up, in the end, to a position of honor and responsibility. If we are disciplined justly, then perhaps we deserve a lower position. But if we endure injustice, when God resurrects us, we are placed beyond the reach of those who would do us harm, especially to our souls." We are the only ones that can hurt our own soul. By ungodly or unbiblical reactions to injustice, we become slaves of our carnal nature. 
We are imprisoned within our own walls of bitterness and anger. But if we trust God, live by principle, and have a true spirit of love and forgiveness, there is nothing that can happen that will cause us irreparable damage. When Joseph was sold by his brothers as a slave, he looked up at the stars and took the promises as his own. Now God tests his faith further. He has seen the hand of God in making him prosper in Potiphar's house. Could he now trust God even though he couldn't see the stars? This time Joseph is put in prison, probably mostly underground, where he couldn't look up at the familiar heavens and see the stars. But Joseph still gathered his faith in spite of the fact that he couldn't see them. God often does this to us. We go through one trial, and if we pass through it in faith, in the promises of God, He sometimes takes us deeper, where we can't see Him and His providence as well. Do we have the faith to take the promises as our own possession and still believe that He is with us and that His promises will not fail? While Joseph was in prison, he was actually free in his soul. This is a tremendous thing. No one can take away the freedom of your soul. They may persecute you, but you don't have to give up your soul liberty. You don't have to grumble and complain. You don't have to voluntarily go into the prison of bitterness and anger. You don't have to wallow in discouragement. You can still be a blessing to others wherever you are, and in the process you will be a blessing to yourself. But wasn't there a better way for God to test Joseph and prepare him for great responsibility? God knows what He's doing. He knows how best to prepare us for our work. He knows exactly what our characters need, but most importantly, He knows that we cannot understand Christ's suffering for us if we do not likewise face injustice. Furthermore, without entering into Christ's suffering, we are unable to comprehend the self-sacrifice of heaven in sending Christ to this world to save the lost race. We will never be able to understand what Jesus did unless we suffer like Him. There's a very important text that will help us understand this. It is found in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 21 to 23. For even hereunto are ye called... Because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example, that ye should follow in his steps, who did no sin, neither was guile found in his mouth, who, when he was reviled, reviled not again. When he suffered, he threatened not, but committed himself to him that judgeth righteously. Can you commit yourself to him that judges righteously? There is only one that can do that. That is God. He doesn't make mistakes. But here we read that we must follow in His steps who did no sin, neither was guile found in His mouth. But yet He was reviled. He suffered unjustly and was abused. But He did not retaliate, which He could have easily done. He could have called one angel to destroy His enemies and He would have judged them righteously. Yet he endured it, even hanging on the cross, so that he could righteously forgive us and give us a future and a hope. Do you trust God like that? 
The Bible says that while Joseph was in prison, he actually prospered. Genesis 39, verse 23. The keeper of the prison looked not to anything that was under his hand, because the Lord was with him, and that which he did, the Lord made it to prosper. Why? That's because he didn't go alone. God went with him. Remember what it means to prosper? It has nothing to do with physical assets. It has to do with character and spirit. Joseph lived in the spirit and he prospered. It doesn't matter the circumstances or how difficult your experience. You can prosper when you live in God. The Lord will be with you just like he was with Joseph and you will prosper. It's a matter of attitude. Your attitude and vision determine your prosperity. While Joseph was in prison, he determined that he would be a blessing to others. He would cheer them up. He would help them deal with their issues. He would counsel them and encourage them. You can make any situation or difficulty a blessing just by your attitude. If the Lord is with you, you will prosper. If you treat others with respect and kindness and cheerfulness, it will go a long way, and the Lord can cause you to prosper, even when you seem to be defeated. It is not the circumstances that prospers a man or a woman. It is the way they see them. We open this story today with Genesis chapter 40. We are told that something happened in the palace of Pharaoh that introduced Joseph to two men. Let us read verses 1 through 3. And it came to pass after these things that the butler of the king of Egypt and his baker had offended their lord the king of Egypt. And Pharaoh was wroth against two of his officers, against the chief of the butlers and against the chief of the bakers. And he put them in ward in the house of the captain of the guard into the prison, the place where Joseph was bound." Imagine what it must have been like for the chief butler and the chief baker to find someone in prison as happy and content as Joseph. They were sad, anxious, and scared. Yet here was a prisoner that was happy and helpful. He actually wanted to do them good, to help them. He even wanted to do his captors good, including the keeper of the prison. How strange! Prison is a terrible, gloomy place, but not for Joseph. He couldn't see the stars at night, but he had faith that they were there. He couldn't breathe the fresh air and see the sunshine, but he had sunshine in his heart, and his presence was like a breath of fresh air. There was something strangely different and wonderful about Joseph. He lightened everybody's burdens. They felt blessed in his presence, and when he would move on to others, they felt as though they could face any difficulty. Verse 4 gives us a little insight. Apparently, Potiphar still trusted Joseph and perhaps sensed the truth about his wife. Though he couldn't bring Joseph into his household again, he nevertheless either gave Joseph authority in the prison or suggested it to the keeper, knowing that things would prosper and go well there under Joseph's leadership. Listen to this. And the captain of the guard, that's Potiphar, charged Joseph with them, the butler and the baker. 
and he served them, and they continued a season in ward. In other words, this verse gives us an insight that is quite amazing. Apparently, Potiphar wanted these high-value prisoners to be especially looked after and put Joseph in charge of them. So the chief butler and chief baker were in prison with Joseph for a season. Apparently, they were both there while there was an investigation into a suspected plot on the king's life. All suspects, or potential suspects, were rounded up and put in custody. Even though they may be innocent, Pharaoh could not take any chances. While they were there, Joseph talked with them and learned a lot about the court of Pharaoh. This was partly God's way of preparing him for his future role. He learned about the character of the king. He learned about court etiquette, its customs and practices. He learned what influences swayed public thinking. He learned many details about government and how laws were administered. He learned the general conditions prevailing in Egypt at the time. While there in the royal prison, he added to his wealth of knowledge an in-depth understanding of Pharaoh's palace and the workings of Pharaoh's government. It was customary on Pharaoh's birthday that he would dispose of pending legal cases. Three days before the birthday, these two men had dreams during the night. Joseph asked them why they looked so sad. Verse 7 says that Joseph asked them, Wherefore look ye so sadly today? And they said unto him, We have dreamed a dream, and there is no interpreter of it. And Joseph said unto them, Do not interpretations belong to God? Tell me them, I pray you. Joseph offers to interpret the dreams. After all, he knows something about dreams, doesn't he? He's had his own dreams. But notice that Joseph doesn't take credit for the interpretation. He gives the credit to God. You see, Joseph has not lost his confidence in God. He senses that God is guiding him and directing his steps, even in this prison. He hasn't lost faith in God's will or his destiny, even in prison. Verses 9 to 13. And the chief butler told his dream to Joseph and said to him, In my dream, behold, a vine was before me, and in the vine there were three branches, and it was as though it budded, and her blossoms shot forth, and the clusters thereof brought forth ripe grapes. And Pharaoh's cup was in my hand, and I took the grapes and pressed them into Pharaoh's cup. And I gave the cup into Pharaoh's hand, and Joseph said unto him, This is the interpretation of it. The three branches are three days. Yet within three days shall Pharaoh lift up thine head and restore thee unto thy place. And thou shalt deliver Pharaoh's cup into his hand after the former manner when thou wast his butler. After Joseph tells the butler the interpretation of the dream, we see a very human side of Joseph. Notice verse 14. But think on me when it shall be well with thee, and show kindness, I pray thee, unto me, and make mention of me unto Pharaoh, and bring me out of this house. For indeed I was stolen away out of the land of the Hebrews, and here also have I done nothing that they should put me into the dungeon. He tells them his story, and explains that he was placed there unjustly. Perhaps 
he saw an opportunity to come work for Pharaoh. While that was God's plan, it was not to be anytime soon, nor was it to be in some small servanthood capacity. Perhaps Joseph was thinking that if he could work as one of the butlers under the chief butler, he could gain the confidence of the king and move on with his life. But God had other plans, bigger plans than Joseph could have possibly imagined. Instead of working his way up the ladder of progress, Joseph was to develop more faith through disappointment and discouraging circumstances, and then God would vault him surprisingly to the top echelons of power. Put in a good word for me with Pharaoh, he said. Joseph was tired of the prison. He desired to be free. Though he was resigned to the will of God, he thought that if the butler could put in a good word, it might help God out a little. Friends, it's all right to be human. But as human beings, we must put our trust in God that He will work things out in His own way and His own time. Trust all to His loving providence. Joseph's desires were not wrong. They were natural, and God understands them. Christ experienced them too, so He understands them also. He doesn't condemn us for human feelings and desires so long as we trust Him to work out things in his own time. The chief baker thought that because the butler's dream had a good interpretation, he had hoped that his also would be good. The chief baker's dream, however, was not good at all, but the messenger of God must tell the truth, hard though it may be. These men were his friends now, but he didn't hold back the truth. Verses 16 through 22. When the chief baker saw that the interpretation was good, he said unto Joseph, I also was in my dream, and behold, I had three white baskets on my head, and in the uppermost basket there was of all manner of baked meats for Pharaoh, and the birds did eat them out of the basket upon my head. And Joseph answered and said, This is the interpretation thereof. The three baskets are three days. Yet within three days shall Pharaoh lift up thy head from off thee, and shall hang thee on a tree, and the birds shall eat thy flesh from off thee. And it came to pass the third day, which was Pharaoh's birthday, that he made a feast unto all his servants, and he lifted up the head of the chief butler and of the chief baker among his servants. And he restored the chief butler to his butlership again, and he gave the cup into Pharaoh's hand. But he hanged the chief baker, as Joseph had interpreted to them. This must have given all that knew Joseph great respect, that went way beyond his management principles and character. Here was a man that understood dreams. This made him something of a diviner or a sorcerer in the eyes of the Egyptians who knew him. Yet Joseph gives the glory to the God of heaven. Instead of becoming proud and boastful, Joseph humbly tries to tell them about the God he serves, the true God, the God who is way above the Egyptian gods. The scripture says in chapter 40, verse 23, Yet did not the chief butler remember Joseph, but forget him. How would you like to have done something really good for someone and in return asked a favor, but were forgotten. My guess is that the butler didn't want anyone to remember 
his time in prison, and he may have had difficulty figuring out how to raise the matter. After all, his own character was under suspicion. Joseph didn't worry much about it for a few days or even a few weeks. He knew it would take time to organize an appointment in the palace for him. But after months went by, he no doubt began to fear that the butler had forgotten him. How disappointing. He had become good friends of the butler in prison, but now it seemed as if the friendship didn't mean anything. Have you ever invested in a friendship and have them let go of it like it had little meaning? Of course you have, and it is hard to take. Weeks went by, month after month, then a whole year. Joseph finally gave up hope. Then came the struggle with God. Why me, God? Why am I here in the dungeon, alone and forgotten? Again, there was only silence. What would become of his dreams down here in the dungeon? Only the usual silence. Had he been wrong? Had his father's been wrong? Only silence. Just like it was when he pled with God on his way to Egypt with the Ishmaelites. Only silence. Why won't God speak to him and comfort him? At the times when Joseph really needed God, he wasn't there, it seemed. Where was God? Silence. Nothing seemed to come out as expected for Joseph. His prospects seemed to get worse, not better. His beliefs about God, as told to him by his father and his grandfather, seemed so wrong, or at least unfulfilled. But again we must learn the idea that prosperity and success is different than even most Christians expect. The popular Christian idea is that good comes to those who are good, and bad comes to those who are bad. This must be overthrown in our thinking. It is often exactly the opposite. But then why be true to God if the reward is adversity, only this pit or this prison? Joseph was punished for the very sin that he successfully resisted and overcame. Imagine that, the very sin he overcame. Why be good? Why do what is right? It doesn't make sense. Was there no God after all? But the Lord never forsook Joseph. He knew that Joseph needed silence. Silence would require him to trust God. But suppose the butler remembered Joseph. He could not return to Potiphar's house for obvious reasons. He could be set free, and there would be great rejoicing in Hebron, and even the view that this was God's will and providence. But would that have fulfilled the purposes of God in bringing the children of Israel down to Egypt so they could become a nation? Would he have been able to save his family? No. Joseph was to provide a safe place for his family so they could become a great nation under God. Isn't that what Jesus is to us? Jesus is the safe place for God's people. He will protect them and shelter them, just like Joseph was to do with his family. He had to go through the pain and suffering in order to become the safe place, where we can hide when our soul is in danger. Why should we thwart the purposes of God? Rejoice when bad things happen, 
This is God's way of refining and preparing you. It is also His way of organizing your future victory and triumph. Think about it. Joseph's brothers cast him into a pit. It was wicked and painful, but did it really hurt him? He was sold into slavery. It was evil and humiliating, but did it really hurt him? He was sent to the dungeon over a foul lie of Mrs. Potiphar. It was a terrible miscarriage of justice, but did it really hurt him? The ingratitude of the chief butler was sad and inexcusable, but did it really hurt Joseph? God's timing is always right. All his plans need time to mature. The great clock of heaven is always right. No chance is involved. You see, God controlled everything so that Joseph could develop a perfect character. God prepared him to be prime minister and save his family and the nation of Egypt. God's timing was involved, and what really hurts us is our own sins, our own compromises, and our own bad attitudes. Joseph was also being prepared to have compassion and understanding to deal with his brothers. Our lives are no less supervised by God today, are they? We may not recognize the hand of God, but He is there. Perfecting character is a slow process. It doesn't happen overnight, but He is good at it. Holiness doesn't mature overnight. God's purpose is not to punish, but to perfect. Everyone is ordained for trials and tribulations because of the good they accomplish. Even our mistakes, by which we inflict pain on ourselves, God uses. Neither is character inherited. God has to take measures that will organize the changes in our characters that will suit His plans and prepare us for a home in heaven. Two full years passed for Joseph in prison. Again, he no doubt goes through all the questions in his soul. Why am I here in this God-forsaken place? What purpose has all this trouble? Yet again he remembers the stars. He considers that he is part of a larger plan and that God is going to look after all that. Little does he know that the next step in his experience will be a complete and almost overwhelming surprise. Little does he realize that all his difficulties and training are nearly over. We don't know how long Joseph was in prison. Some think it was more than ten years. Some think it was more than three years. We know that it was more than two because it was two years after the butler forgot him. Without that patient endurance and trust, Joseph could not have been the man that he became. Without that patient endurance and trust, Joseph would not have had the capacity to deal with his brothers with compassion and kindness. We need to have our endurance put to the stretch. It does things to us that nothing else in the world can do. It changes our perspective. It reveals to us our inner selves. It even helps resolve feelings of bitterness and anger. Trusting in God patiently ultimately brings victory over the darkest parts of our lives. It puts them behind us so that we can move on. But if we fuss and fret over trials and difficulties, if we indulge bitterness and anger, 
toward those who have offended us, we will never rise to the level of character power that God plans for us. Early in the morning before sunrise, messengers were sent from the palace of Pharaoh all over the city. Households were just waking up as they knocked on the appointed doors. Royal messengers were bringing orders for the full council to attend the king. What kind of emergency would call for such an early council? Hundreds of households began to buzz with excitement and anxiety. What could it be? Why everyone? Why all the wise men, magicians and diviners, soothsayers and priests and counselors, in addition to the Supreme Council? As the large assembly gathered as quickly as they could, word was getting around the city. Potiphar was among those summoned to the palace. After all, he was in charge of security and must be in attendance. As the council began, Pharaoh related his dream. But the auspicious assembly was awestruck and dumbfounded. Here were hundreds of wise men, counselors, soothsayers, magicians, philosophers, priests, and diviners, but not one had even a conjecture with a reasonable possibility, not a clue. Word perhaps leaked out around the city about the dream and that no one could tell the meaning. The whole city was astir. Dreams were omens of the future in Egypt, and when the Pharaoh had such unusual dreams, there must be serious things in store for Egypt. Pharaoh tells the council about the seven thin cows that eat up the seven fat cows, and the seven lean ears of corn that eat up the seven fat ears of corn. As the vast assembly listens to the dreams of Pharaoh, a deathly silence falls upon the throng. What could they mean? No one moves. No one wants to venture a guess at the meaning because they fear they might be wrong. And this is a very important message. Suddenly there was a movement to one side of the throne. One steps forward and bows low before Pharaoh. The assembly was hushed. It is the chief butler. What would he know about the dream? They listened to his words. Chapter 41, 13 then spake the chief butler unto Pharaoh, saying, I do remember my faults this day. Pharaoh was wroth with his servants, and put me in ward in the captain of the guard's house, both me and the chief baker. And we dreamed a dream in one night, I and he. We dreamed each man according to the interpretation of his dream. And there was there with us a young man, an Hebrew, servant to the captain of the guard, and we told him, and he interpreted to us our dreams. To each man, according to his dream, he did interpret. And it came to pass, as he interpreted to us, so it was. Me he restored to mine office, and him he hanged. Notice the butler doesn't admit that he was in prison. That's too embarrassing. He just says that he was kept under house arrest in the home of the captain of the guard, Potiphar and with him was a servant, not a prisoner, of Potiphar. Potiphar stands near the throne watching and listening carefully to everything that is said and done. His warm smile grows knowingly on his face. This can be none other than his trusted servant, Joseph. Notice the butler doesn't give any suggestions. He is afraid that if Pharaoh doesn't accept them or if they don't work out, he fears it would fall back on him. 
Possibly he feels that Pharaoh doesn't trust him that much, so he is very careful not to remind him or make suggestions that might backfire upon investigation, such as the discovery that Joseph is actually in prison. But Pharaoh is so anxious about his dreams that he doesn't even think about what he's doing. He hurriedly calls for this man. Potiphar dispatches messengers to his palace and calls for Joseph. Though Joseph's call is urgent and they are making Joseph come in haste, he nevertheless knows that he must look respectable, so he takes the necessary time to shave and to change his clothes. He knows what is expected in court. He knows that he cannot go in his prison garments. This would be terribly disrespectful, and it might discredit the purpose for which he has been called. Always remember to prepare yourself to make the right impression, my friends. As Joseph enters the palace, he is awestruck. Here is the noblest assembly in all of Egypt. They are silent as he approaches the throne. He can feel the anxiety in the air as all eyes are on him. You can hear a pin drop. The suspense is immense. Maybe out of the corner of his eye, Joseph sees Potiphar standing erect, arms folded with a slight smile on his face, a smile he's seen before, a smile of approval. Verse 15. Pharaoh makes his request known. And Pharaoh said unto Joseph, I have dreamed a dream, and there is none that can interpret it. And I have heard say of thee that thou canst understand a dream to interpret it. Joseph responds in confidence, and nobly tells Pharaoh that it is God that interprets dreams. It is not in me, he said in verse 16. God shall give Pharaoh an answer of peace. He implies that God has sent these dreams to warn Pharaoh and offer him a solution to the problem. This is comforting and encouraging to Pharaoh. He senses that there is a divine purpose behind these troubling dreams and that he can have confidence in what Joseph is about to tell him. Pharaoh tells his dreams to Joseph and explains that the magicians could not tell the meaning, making the contrast between their false religion and Joseph's trust in the true God even more obvious. Without hesitation, Joseph interprets the dreams. To him, the meaning is obvious, not because of Joseph's personal abilities, but because the Holy Spirit reveals to him the exact meaning. Verse 25, And Joseph said unto Pharaoh, The dream of Pharaoh is one. God hath showed Pharaoh what he is about to do. Both dreams refer to the same thing. The sevens refer to years. There would be seven years of plenty, then seven years of famine. Verse 32. And for that the dream was doubled unto Pharaoh twice. It is because the thing is established by God, and God will shortly bring it to pass. Joseph affirms that this is a clear message from God, and that it is very important that he do something about it to preserve Egypt. Now the king is awestruck. The interpretation makes so much sense and is so clear. How is it that Joseph's God is so kind to tell him what is coming? The heathen gods don't do that. His confidence in Joseph takes an enormous leap. The Holy Spirit prompts Joseph to give some wise recommendations. 
Remember, the Lord was with Joseph to make him prosper. Verse 33-36 Now therefore, let Pharaoh look out a man discreet and wise, and set him over the land of Egypt. Let Pharaoh do this, and let him appoint officers over the land, and take up the fifth part of the land of Egypt in the seven plenteous years. And let them gather all the food of those good years that come, and lay up corn under the hand of Pharaoh, and let them keep food in the cities. And that food shall be for store to the land against the seven years of famine, which shall be in the land of Egypt, that the land perish not through the famine. Imagine Potiphar's satisfaction. Here is the young man he loves. Here is the young man who caused him so much prosperity. Now he is recommending the most prudent course to Pharaoh. Potiphar's pride can hardly be hidden. He will take the opportunity some day to remind Pharaoh that he trained Joseph, so to speak, which will no doubt affect his political career in a most positive way. Pharaoh is deeply impressed and greatly moved by the humility and clear vision of Joseph. Here is a young man who is so wise and understanding. My friends, this is what God can do with young people who commit their ways to Him and allow the same God that prospered Joseph to guide and lead their lives. For the children listening to this message, I want to tell you that the God of heaven has a purpose for you too. For those youth that are listening to this message, I want to say that Joseph was in corrupt Egypt there were temptations all around him to compromise his integrity, but he turned from all those worldly attractions and kept his eyes single to the glory of God. If you do the same, God will bless you and place you where he can really use you. And for those adults listening to this message, I want to encourage you that no matter what happens, we can look beyond the darkness and by faith accept that God's plan for us will be made perfect and in his time. He will bring us to the place where we can powerfully serve him. Verse 37 and 38. And the thing was good in the eyes of Pharaoh and in the eyes of all his servants. Why was it good in their eyes? Was it because of Joseph or was it because God had made Joseph to prosper? Everyone in that vast assembly is satisfied and felt good about the proposal. And Pharaoh said unto his servants, Can we find such a one as this is, a man in whom the Spirit of God is? Did you hear that? Pharaoh comprehends that Joseph has the Spirit of God. He unwittingly reveals Joseph's inner life, his secret life, the hiding of his power. Pharaoh appoints Joseph as prime minister. What did the court see in Joseph that would make them want to exalt Joseph, a mere slave, above themselves? Interesting thought, isn't it? They sensed that God was with him. They sensed that God was in him. Joseph was so transparent a medium that they felt the presence of God. Through him they felt that God was with them. What a testimony to his secret life. Joseph depreciated himself. He was wholly out of sight and God was seen. 
Did Joseph think that Pharaoh would give him the position he had advised him to create? No, I don't think so. He was a Hebrew, an alien, a different race, a different religion, a slave and a prisoner under a cloud of criminality, and he couldn't imagine it. No doubt he thought that there were well-qualified individuals in the government of Egypt that could do what he advised. Further, he was still an inexperienced youth. He was only thirty years old. He had never been connected with the court, let alone supervise it. His only contact was at a distance, as Potiphar's servant and as a friend of the butler and baker. But Joseph had quiet dignity. There was a core of strength in him that God had developed by severe test and trial, and it was this inner strength, derived from his trust in God's promises, that gave Pharaoh and the council confidence in his leadership. Joseph moves from prison to his own palace, given him by Pharaoh. What a contrast! Joseph knew how to be abased and how to abound. He goes to work, and for seven years he stores up grain. Now pay attention to what God is doing here. God's plan is to make Israel a great nation. He plans to bring them to Egypt. So instead of just bringing them down there, he organizes a famine. After seven years of plenty, so that Joseph's family then is forced to come and buy food. This famine is not just about food. However, it is about reconciliation. My friend, when you have wandered far from God as Joseph's brothers have, you have a famine in your heart. When you turn your back on God, you hunger and thirst. You may try to disguise it, you may try to satisfy it in your own way, but you are in spiritual famine. And this is God's way of leading you back. It is Christ's way of finding his lost brothers and sisters. Think about it. You can come back to God. If you have wandered away, you can return. You can be satisfied with the bread of heaven and the water of life. You don't have to wander anymore. You can come to Jesus and be reconciled, just like Joseph's brothers would come down and be reconciled with him. Don't wait. Do it now. Jesus is calling you, my friend. The famine is not only in Egypt, but also in all the nations around. All of them are coming to Joseph. Joseph becomes the most politically important international figure of the times. He becomes the focal point of whole nations. God does all this big stuff just so he could bring Israel down to Egypt but also to deal with the characters of Joseph and his brothers, and to teach the Egyptians and Canaanites about himself. But there is more. God takes Joseph and his family on these large and expensive maneuvers so that he can build up a reservoir of confidence in God through 400 years of slavery. He wanted all of Israel to look at the stars at night and trust that God's promises are for each one of them personally, just like they were for Joseph and for the church collectively, just like they were for Joseph's family. God sometimes goes through expensive maneuvers in our lives too, 
just so that we can learn to look at the stars and make His promises our own. God is thinking ahead. He knows the great laws of heredity. He has to put the whole family through the fire to bring them up a whole lot higher than they were, so that their wickedness and their hereditary influence on their children for generations to come will have the character, if they choose to be loyal to God, to be a peculiar people, a royal nation, the people of God. Moreover, they would have this marvelous history to remind them, even in the darkest of times, of God's good dealings with them. God is big. He allows a famine on all the land, just so Joseph's family would come down to Egypt and he could make them a nation. They would have never chosen it on their own. Jacob might have done that, but he was not alone now. He had the influences of his family to deal with, and he didn't trust his sons. It would have been too difficult to make such a decision. So God helped them out a little. Well, a lot. Do you think that God would move heaven and earth for you, like He did for Joseph and his family? Of course He would, and He will. God has a destiny for you just like He did for them. At the end of time, this is exactly what He plans to do with His people, make them a great nation. Why didn't God just tell Jacob there was going to be a famine so that he could prepare? That would be easy but that would have thwarted his plan for Israel. Isn't it amazing that God often works behind the shadows, keeping watch above his own? He sometimes keeps us in the dark, but he organizes the best set of circumstances perfectly designed for our specific character needs. He would sacrifice a lot of others in order to save you and give you a destiny, an inheritance among the saints of God. Incredible! He will move nations in order to make it happen. When things seem to go wrong, why don't we look at the big picture? Though we can't see the future, why not trust God? He has it all in His hand. So why get angry at little slights? Why get upset when someone is unkind or unjust? Why hold a grudge? Learn to forgive and let God take care of it. Perhaps, my dear friend, you have experienced injustice in your life. Perhaps you have been tempted to become bitter and angry, or have let feelings of alienation poison your soul. If that is the case, take courage. God allowed it to happen for your good and for the good of those that did it to you. You are part of God's larger plan. He will use you if you let Him. You can be positive even if you suffer great injustice at the hands of others. You don't have to live in a world of frustration or bitterness. God calls you higher. You can go outside on a clear night and look at the stars, the same stars that Joseph saw, and you can take God's promises for your very own. You need to do that. It will give you a great courage. As you look at the sky, think of what Joseph must have thought. Your heart can be mended. God wants to do that for you. He ordains that you go through these kinds of experiences just so that He can mend more in your heart than you thought was needed.
He wants to give you the noble character of Joseph that can endure hardship and trial. Can you give him your heart? Can you trust him with your future? Can you trust him with your present, with all the pain and hurt and sorrow? You can, you know. Do it now. It is a great comfort to let go of anger. It brings great peace. Let God deal with the brothers of Joseph that are in your life. He will take care of them and discipline them and chastise them if they need it. You may have no idea how God is dealing with them, but you can trust Him. They may be feeling guilty right now for what they've done to you. They may be suffering from the stress of knowing that they have wronged you, but because of pride or other things going on in their lives, they are unable to reconcile. Give God time. Go on with your life. Don't live in the past with all its problems, pain, and persecution. What do you say? Why not? You'll be so much happier. If you're not dealing with these things right now, perhaps you have in the past. You certainly will in the future. The story of Joseph is there for us to know and understand so that when we are abused unjustly, we can be reminded of God's deep love and care and His personal plan for each of us. God bless you and keep you as you think deeply about the things in your life so that you will understand His larger purpose and the ultimate destiny of your soul if you are victorious. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, how great you are. We want to learn the powerful lesson of how to trust you through all the circumstances of our lives. We don't always have the answers. Often you're silent. But we can trust that you have a master plan, a plan that will bring us a future and a hope, a place in your kingdom. Please help us not to let our circumstances discourage us. Please help us not to let the actions of others offend us or make us bitter. We don't want to live in that kind of world. Thank you for your personal care for us. And thank you for Jesus, who is our Lord and Savior, our protector and our refuge. In his holy name I pray. Amen. You have longed for sweet and for a face to increase and have earnestly fervently prayed but you cannot have rest or be perfectly blessed until
can tell all the love he will send from above and how happy our hearts will be made of the fellowship sweet we shall share at his feet when our you've been greatly blessed by this month's message. Your prayers and gifts mean much to us. Thank you for your support. The following is our monthly prophetic intelligence briefing, a feature that brings you current events in light of prophecy, especially for those who love the appearing of Jesus Christ. We can see the signs of the times telling us that we are nearing the world's great crisis. May the Lord find us faithful. Our first item this month, State of the Bible 2018. Seven Top Findings This is Keep the Faith Ministry News. I'm Richard Barnett. I will be filling in for Hal Mayer while he's on medical leave. Barnett conducted his annual State of the Bible survey in partnership with the American Bible Society to examine behaviors and beliefs about the Bible among U.S. adults. The results show that despite shifting cultural trends, Americans still read the Word and it remains a powerful, transformative tool in their life. These and other snapshots are included in our list of top seven findings from this year's State of the Bible report. One, half of Americans are Bible users. Overall, about half of Americans are Bible users. That is, they engage with the Bible on their own by using, listening to, watching, praying, or using Bible text or content in any format, not including use at a church service, at least three to four times a year, or 48%. Bible use has remained relatively consistent since 2011. Adults who use the Bible daily account for 14% of the total adult population, followed by 13% who use it several times a week, 8% who do so once a week, 6% about once a month, and 8% who use it three to four times a year. Two, Bible use more likely among boomers, city dwellers, and southerners. City dwellers, 53%, and small town or rural 49% residents report higher use of the Bible than do adults who reside in the suburbs, or 42%. Above average use can also be found among residents of the South, or 55%, particularly compared to the other regions. The Northeast, 42%, the West, 44%, and the Midwest, 49%. Millennials, 47%, Gen X, 45%, 
and elders, 48%, are slightly less likely to use the Bible than boomers, 51%. Three, use of technology to read the Bible has grown steadily. For Bible users, the appeal of a print version of the Bible remains high at almost 9 in 10, or 89%. Little has changed in the preference for a physical copy of the scriptures in the last eight years since tracking began. Although use of digital formats is also on par with 2017, in general, use has steadily climbed since 2011. More than half of users now search for Bible content on the internet, 57%, or a smartphone, 55%, and another 42% use a Bible app on their phones. More than one-third listens to a teaching via podcast, 35%, or audio versions of the Bible, 36%. Usage for all these formats continues to grow each year with the exception of a small group usage, which appears to be on the decline again after having trended upward. Four, two-thirds of Americans express Bible curiosity. Two-thirds of Americans, 66%, express at least some curiosity to know more about what the Bible says including one in three, 29%, who express a strong desire. A similar number of adults, 63%, are interested in knowing more about who Jesus Christ is, including 31% who agree strongly. Curiosity is most common among weekly church attenders, adults who have never been to college, and adults with minor children at home. Those who are already familiar with and open to using the Bible and those who are already in the church pews are the most movable. Five, half of Americans ponder how the Bible applies to life. Just over half of adults who used the Bible in the past week, 53%, say they give a lot of thought to how it might apply to their lives. Although the number of those who think deeply about Scripture in this way is statistically on par with 2017, it has slipped since 2011 or 61%. Those with higher levels of Bible engagement are predictably more likely to say they give a lot of thought to the Bible's application. Six, people think that reading the Bible positively impacts spiritual growth. More than half of monthly Bible users report that reading the Bible has resulted in a self-perceived willingness to engage in their faith more, 56%, and to show more loving behavior towards others, 54%. Two out of five Bible users, 42%, say that they are more generous with their time, energy, or financial resources. More than half of Bible users, 57%, contend that when they use the Bible, they have a greater awareness of how much they need God all the time. Slightly less than half experience a curiosity to know God better, 48%, and consistently experience a sense of connection with God, 47%. 7. Six in ten Americans believe the Bible has transformed their life. Overall, almost six in ten U.S. adults, 58%, believe that the message of the Bible has transformed their life, including three in ten, 28%, who agree strongly with this statement. Roughly two in five adults, 42%, say the Bible has not transformed their life. Married adults and those with children under 18 are both more likely to indicate that the Bible has been life-changing. Behold, the days come, says the Lord God, that I will send a famine in the land, not a famine of bread, nor a thirst for water, but of hearing the words of the Lord. Amos 8.11 Next, China's big brother, social control, goes to Australia. Australia is preparing to debut its version of the Chinese regime's high-tech system for monitoring and controlling its citizens. The launch, to take place in the northern city of Darwin, 
will include systems to monitor people's activity via their cell phones. The new system is based on monitoring programs in Shenzhen, China, where the Chinese Communist Party, or CCP, is testing its social credit system. Officials on the Darwin Council traveled to Shenzhen, according to NT News, to have a chance to see exactly how their smart technology works prior to being fully rolled out. In Darwin, they've already constructed poles fitted with speakers, cameras, and Wi-Fi, according to NT News, to monitor people, their movements around the city, the websites they visit, and what apps they use. The monitoring will be done mainly by artificial intelligence, but will alert authorities based on set triggers. Just as in China, their surveillance system is being branded as a smart city program, and while Australian officials claim its operations are benign, they've announced it functions to monitor cell phone activity and virtual fences that will trigger alerts if people cross them. We'll be getting sent an alarm saying there's a person in this area that you've put a virtual fence around. Boom, an alert goes out to whatever authority, whether it's us or police to say, look at camera five, says Josh Sattler, the Darwin Council's general manager for innovation, growth and development services, according to NT News. The nature of the virtual fences and what type of activity will sound an alarm still isn't being made clear. The system is being promoted as mostly benign. Sadler said it will tell the government where people are using Wi-Fi, what they're using Wi-Fi for, are they watching YouTube, etc. All these bits of information we can share with business. We can let businesses know, hey, 80% of the people actually use Instagram within this area of the city between these hours. The CCP's smart city social credit system is able to monitor each person in the society tracking every element of their lives, including their friends, online purchases, daily behavior, and other information, and assigns each person a citizen score that determines their level of freedom in society. The tool is a core piece of CCP's programs to monitor and persecute dissidents, including religious believers and people who oppose ruling communist system. Chinese human rights lawyer Tang Bio a visiting scholar at New York University described the social credit system as a new form of tyranny meant to reactivate the CCP's totalitarian hold on society. In the past, there was a Nazi totalitarianism and Mao Zedong's totalitarian system, but a totalitarian system powered by the internet and contemporary technology has not existed before, Tang said in a recent interview with the Epoch Times. The CCP is now taking the first step to build such a high-tech totalitarian system by using credit ratings and monitoring and recording every detail in people's daily life, which is very frightening. The regime also isn't interested in keeping the technology within its own borders. It's exporting the system and its China model of totalitarian government as a service of its One Belt, One Road program. When the CCP builds its infrastructure abroad, its surveillance and social control programs are part of the package. In Darwin, there has been a push to jump aboard the CCP's program. The local officials made a friendship deal with Yoshu District in Gangsu, China in 2018. According to John Garrick, a senior lecturer at Charles Darwin University, the deal was branded by Chinese media as part of President Xi Jinping's Signature Belt and Road Initiative. That followed a previous deal between Darwin and CCP in which the city signed a 99-year lease of the port of Darwin to a Chinese company and the CCP. The Chinese owner, Yi Cheng, had referred to the deal as being part of One Belt, One Road. 
The deals also should raise concern for U.S. Marines stationed in Darwin under the Obama-era pivot to the Pacific about whether the CCP is able to monitor data collected on cell phones from its systems to the area. Under a 2011 deal between the United States and Australia, the U.S. troops will be there until 2040. And of similar concern, the decision of Australia to begin implementing the CCP's programs for totalitarian social control represents a major development in the CCP's China model push. As the Epoch Times has reported, the CCP views Australia as a testing ground for programs it wants to spread to the West. After Australia comes Canada, then the United States, in an apparent imitation of Mao Zedong's strategy to surround the cities with the countryside. Communist China is making its way through Western society. Today it is Australia. Tomorrow it is Canada and then America. Then it is other nations. The kings of the earth seek to take away the freedom of the people to live by their consciences. The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us break their bands asunder and cast away their cords from us. He that sitteth in the heavens shall laugh. The Lord shall have them in derision. Then shall he speak unto them in his wrath and vex them in his sore displeasure. Psalm 2, 2 2-5. Next, Graham denounces Massachusetts' plan to remove God from oath of office. Christian leader Franklin Graham sharply criticized a proposal in Massachusetts that would remove the word God from the state's oath of office and amend the state constitution drafted by founding father John Adams to be more gender neutral. It's a shame, said Reverend Graham, secularists across the country would like to completely wipe God from our nation's past, present, and future. Let's don't let that happen. In the Bay State, State Representative Mindy Dome, Democrat from Amherst, has proposed an amendment that would change the state constitution from saying, so help me God, to this I do under the pains and penalties of perjury. Almost every elected official in Massachusetts has taken the oath of office saying, so help me God, for more than 200 years. Dome's proposal was approved by the state government's Joint Legislative Committee in late April and has the support of at least 13 other Democrats, reported the Salem News. The plan also calls for changing the pronoun he to they in the Constitution to make it more gender neutral. The 1780 Constitution of Massachusetts was drafted by John Adams and is the world's oldest functioning written constitution, states mass.gov. It served as a model for the United States Constitution, which was written in 1787 and became effective in 1789. Democratic legislators in the state of Massachusetts want to take a three-letter word out of the oath of office for their elected officials, said Reverend Franklin Graham in a May 3rd post on Facebook. You guessed it, the word they want out is God. Graham continued, I agree with Andrew Beckwith, president of Massachusetts Family Institute, who said, It's yet another cynical attempt to erase the rich legacy of faith that has been part of our commonwealth from the pilgrims to today. Isn't that a shame? In his letters and writings, John Adams frequently noted the existence of God, the truth of Christianity, and the necessity of Christian morality in society to sustain democracy. The secular push to get away from God and any references to God will drive America's conservatives to enact religious laws to force the liberals to get religion. Sunday laws will soon be debated in an effort to force America to come back to God. 
Once a few disasters hit that are serious enough to be identified as a judgment from God, it will be easy to enact Sunday laws. It will be declared that men are offending God by the violation of Sunday Sabbath, that this sin has brought calamities which will not cease until Sunday observance shall be strictly enforced, and that those who present the claims of the fourth commandment, thus destroying reverence for Sunday, are troublers of the people, preventing their restoration to divine favor and temporal prosperity. The Great Controversy, page 590. Next, how Europe is handing off its ISIS militants to Iraq. Standing in his prisoner's yellow jumpsuit, Mustafa Merzugi remained quiet at first. He shook slightly and brushed at his eyes before assuming a neutral expression. His Arabic appeared to be limited, and when the judge first began to question him, he stayed silent, eventually saying in French, There is no point that I speak. Whatever I say, you will convict me to death. About an hour later, he was. Merzugi was one of 11 French defendants that an Iraqi court sentenced to hang over the course of trials from May 26 to June 3rd. He was captured, however, not in Iraq, but in neighboring Syria by the Syrian Democratic Forces, or SDF, during the last battles against the Islamic State. Merzugi and his fellow ISIS defendants were the first official cases of foreigners transferred from Syria to Iraq for trial juridical guinea pigs in an experimental solution to the problem facing many European countries whose citizens left home to fight for the Islamic State. The Europeans do not want them to return, but the SDF does not have the sovereign power to sentence them, leaving their citizens in limbo. Transferring them to Iraq allows Europe to sidestep the issue, but it comes with a price, or to be more precise, a fee. Sources from both Iraq and the U.S. sides have alleged that Iraq wants to be paid for the trouble of trying foreigners. Between 800 and 1,500 foreigners from countries including France, the United Kingdom, and Germany still remain in Syria detained by the SDF. France alone has about 450 citizens being held in Syria. Jean-Charles Broussard, the head of the Center for the Analysis of Terrorism, or CAT, in France, believes that as long as public opinion holds steady in resisting their return, this is only the beginning of a new kind of injustice. I believe this is the first wave of trials, and we can anticipate other waves in the future, he told Foreign Policy. From what we know, the trials were very expedited and had very little time for defense. It is the opposite of our own values of justice. For French President Emmanuel Macron, the Iraqi trials were an uneasy solution to an intractable problem. In late February, Macron faced a French public haunted by the trauma of the 2015 Paris attacks that left 130 people dead and hostile to the potential return of any French Islamic State members. On the other hand, there was mounting pressure from the United States and the SDF to take the foreign detainees out of their territory in northeastern Syria. Macron met with Iraqi President Baram Salih and after long discussions, they held a joint press conference in which Macron pledged to deepen France's military and economic support for Iraq. Salih confirmed that a total of 13 French nationals would be transferred to Iraq for trial. I think it was at this moment during this presidential visit that this deal was passed between Macron and the Iraqis, said Miriam Benrad, a research fellow at the Institute of Research and Study on the Arab and Muslim worlds in France. The Iraqis said very clearly to the French, we are ready to keep them, but that's going to mean money and that's going to mean assistance, in particular arms and military assistance. 
French Foreign Minister Jean-Yves Le Drain has portrayed the prosecutions as just, stating recently that the defendants have received fair trials. His statements have been condemned by lawyers and human rights organizations, but public opinion appears to be with the government. A recent poll in France showed that 89% of respondents believed the government was right to let Iraq judge the French nationals. Ladrain knows that this is purely a political move because he knows that the French population does not want them back. There's a certain revenge mode for a lot of French people. They are getting what they deserve after everything we have suffered, Benrod said. France claims that the transfer was an agreement between the Kurdish SDF forces and the Iraqis and that it was not involved in the decision. France has officially stated that it respects Iraq's sovereignty in this matter, but Iraq did not claim jurisdiction over these cases until recently. The Iraqi justice system is infamous for its abuses. Trials lasting 10 minutes, torture, and forced confessions have all been widely reported. If a country pays for its nationals to be prosecuted in Iraq, it could potentially violate international law and make France complicit in torture. Paris is sensitive to these issues, and it is believed that France would not make any public quid pro quo or direct payment for these trials. It would be increased military assistance or development money or whatever else. Regardless of payment, France did not object to the transfer of its citizens to Iraq, a nation known for widely applying the death penalty in terrorism cases. The courts prosecute defendants in these cases under Iraq's 2005 anti-terrorism law, which has been heavily criticized for consisting of broad articles that can be loosely interpreted. In the French cases, the judge needed to prove only that they were members of a terrorist organization to sentence them to death. Sentencing requires only confession, a system that incentivizes abuse and torture in order for interrogators to extract the necessary confessions. Could prosecutors use a similar model of justice when God's people are treated as terrorists for not keeping Sunday sacred? While men are sleeping, Satan is actively arranging matters so that Lord's people may not have mercy or justice. The Sunday movement is now making its way in darkness. The leaders are concealing the true issue, and many who unite in the movement do not themselves see whether the undercurrent is tending. Testimonies for the Church, Volume 5, page 452. Unfortunately, our time is up. Remember, there are more prophetic intelligence briefings on our website at ktfnews.com. It's been a great pleasure to spend this time with you. I hope you have been encouraged to live for Jesus, for we are near the end. Remember that God has a plan for your life and that right now you can make a new start with Jesus. Thank you for your prayers and support. And until next time, may God bless and keep you and your family in His loving and protecting care. Keep the faith.